treaties, which are not built upon reciprocal benefits, are not likely to be of long duration. The words of General George Washington. And this is The Guardians of the Republic. Hello, I'm Patrick Murray from the Monmouth University Poll, and my co-host is Ian Kahn from the TV series Turn, Washington Spies. On this episode of the podcast, we look at the challenges facing the Republic this week. We'll cover that Democratic debate in our Hot Take segment and wrap with our Guardian of the Week discussion. Please make sure to subscribe, give us a rating in your favorite podcast app, and I'm thrilled to have my new microphone. Patrick, first, let's talk about how the Republic was challenged this week. Well... The impeachment trial is now moving into a new phase with the naming of the House managers. Um, But, uh, you know, the question that remains, was it a good idea or a bad idea? We talked about this last week for Nancy Pelosi to uh, delay for as long as uh, she has on this. This was your uh, coining of the phrase tribes law. What do you think? Did did it work or not work? I'll tell you where I was at last week. I'll tell you where I am this week. Uh, Last week, I I was absolutely sure that it was a great choice that was made by Nancy Pelosi to hold them. Uh, And and then there was an instinct for me at the end of last week, the beginning of this week, where I was like, you know what? It was great that she did it over the break, but I really think she should have just, as soon as they got back in, should have handed those articles of impeachment over. It was like, you're you're sort of done getting all the benefits out of it. Let's let's move on. However, even to today, which we're going to get into in a moment with the Parnas letter that just came out. What it's done is sort of what Donald Trump does in his presidency is bring things into chaos. That mm-hmm. There's nothing sort of settled. Her Pelosi's choice not to send those articles over to the Senate really kept things from being sort of simple and padded done. And I think there's value to that. I thought there was value last week. I continue to think there's value to this week. Uh, Chris Saliza, who I know a little bit, um, sort of wrote this article about... This is a uh, CNN analyst. Yeah, CNN. former Washington Post uh, yeah. writer who's now over at CNN, wrote that she really lost the bet here. Uh, I disagree firmly with her. I actually think that the the long-term benefits of what she did is impossible to be seen right now. Maybe in, in you know, it's like they've lost the battle perhaps for a couple of days the war is going to be different. And and that's still how I feel about it. I still think it was a wise choice by Pelosi, a bold choice by Pelosi. Uh, Larry Tribe gets a tip of the hat for the work that he did on it. Um, and I think we'll, we'll see how it plays out. But I think it changed the dynamic of the impeachment, which is coming up next week. Yeah. I'm not sure. I, I remain uncertain uh, of what the impact will be. As you said, I am not going to make the quick hot take analysis like uh, Saliza did on this. Uh, I see both the pros and cons of it. Nancy Pelosi is somebody that I would never put a bet against in terms of her decision on strategy. Uh, But of course, my analysis is based on how does this move the needle on bringing back public confidence in our constitutional norms. So I don't know uh, what that impact will be. Mm -hmm. Uh, The hope was that there would be a lot more Evidence that come out, and there has been some evidence that has come out in the, in the meantime, and we'll get to that in a moment. Right, well, uh, but but wait, I think, wait, I, but, but, but wait a minute now, John Bolton, John Bolton coming out over that break and saying that he is willing to testify if subpoenaed in the Senate. I am not sure that that happens if Pelosi doesn't hold on to those articles. And the pressure then that goes on, well, the, the value of Bolton, especially with the new news that's coming out every minute. The value of Bolton saying that, the power of that, is is quite something. It pushes the senators, it pushes Mitt Romney into saying, yeah, we should hear from John Bolton. 
So yeah. I just wanted to throw that in there. Sorry to interrupt. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So no, it's fine. Uh, and I know you feel that way. And I'm not. I'm just not convinced that that was that was a necessity. Um, or, or maybe I was just looking for something bigger. Or, but I think what happened was once uh, this whole Ukraine thing happened and became revealed, the, the die was kind of cast. And in many ways, Pelosi's hand was forced. You had to then open a formal impeachment inquiry based on that. But the problem was, did you have enough information there? Or you have enough evidence or enough charges that you could really convince the public of what was going on? And you didn't. But at the same time, you then the clock was ticking and you did have to move things on. And I think she realized that, you know, she was being forced to move things along more quickly than you probably would have liked and did things along the way strategically to try to slow that clock down a little bit, which I do think overall was a smart decision. I don't know what the impact of that is yet. That's fair all enough. I'm saying. Yep. yep, fair enough, fair enough. Now, we also, we, we, they have just named the House managers, and I'll name them out, and you tell me what you think. Jerry Nadler from New York, Adam Schiff from California, Zoe Lofgren from California, Hakeem Jeffries from New York. Interesting, I didn't notice that it's two New York, two Californias. Val Deming from Florida, Jason Crow from Colorado, and Sylvia Garcia from Texas. Now, what do you think that these House managers are going to bring to the table? Well, it's kind of interesting what you just said, which was you just noticed there's two New Yorks and two Californias. By the same token, there are a couple of uh, freshman House members on there from Colorado and Texas. Those states, for anybody who follows electoral politics, should be interesting, as well as Florida with Val Deming uh, on there as well. So that was interesting in and of itself. Like where would the, the, the you know, you, you, you knew Nadler was going to be on there. You knew Schiff was going to be on there uh, as, as the chairs of the respective committees who headed this investigation. Zoe Lofgren, who is on the Judiciary Committee, the number two person Democrat on the Judiciary Committee, has been around. I think she actually worked as a staffer during the Nixon uh, the Nixon impeachment. She was in Congress during the Clinton impeachment, so somebody who has a long track record there. Uh, Hakeem Jeffries. That surprises me. But that I guess does, actually he- doesn't, because I've, I've seen him in action outside of the impeachment um, in- inquiry, and he does have somebody... I just who never is- have... I didn't find him particularly... I, I, he never grabbed me during uh, during those hearings, but he has a powerful position in the Democratic Party, and I, I guess I, I, I can understand that. I he's, the caucus, he's the caucus chair. There, Val Deming, Val Deming it does not surprise me. She was she was largely successful. I think she was on both committees as well, uh, Judiciary and Intelligence, and she was strong, always strong, always brought something to the table that was surprising. Yeah, I, I think uh, yeah she had a very interesting performance. I think uh, Jeffrey's while he didn't have a, what you might consider a strong performance in front of the cameras, I think the story is behind the cameras. He's somebody who can get through the information and you know, okay. sort through, yeah, yeah, you know, kind of, kind of get into that data and that evidence and really pull out and tease out the information that they need. And, and the strategy, as, the strategy, as you say, Crow and Garcia. But, but you know what? The truth is. You know, this is really, it's like Bruce Springsteen and the E Street Band. It's going to be Adam Schiff's show. It's going to be Adam Schiff. He's the lead singer. He's the lead prosecutor. Uh, for, he's the lead house manager. And he's going to be the one that you hear from, that we all hear from the most. In some ways, we may hear from him more than all the others combined. Uh, and I, I think the Democrats can feel, um, you know, he, he yeah, Garcia, sort of, Garcia, I don't 
because she's on the Judiciary Committee, and, and, and obviously because she is one of the most junior members, if not the most junior member on that committee, uh, her questioning didn't go till the end. So I don't actually remember any of that uh, from her. Jason Crow uh, is not even on any of these committees. He's on the Armed Services Committee. But again— And you have to say with Nancy Pelosi, as you just said earlier, that if Nancy—you don't question Nancy Pelosi. You just—there's no reason to anymore. She has handled her business— extremely well and and you know that you keep coming back to some of the best thought leaders in this world and they say look if you don't trust nancy pelosi for the democratic party i don't know who you're going to trust yeah. and i should and say so and she, and she made the clear choices. as strategy uh you know i might question nancy pelosi in terms of the big picture question uh which is preserving the republic as as we are but in terms of the strategy of how you handle the each event as it happens and and try to weigh the consequences for your party yeah, I don't. I don't know how you question Nancy Pelosi's judgment. I mean, you can, you can argue with some of the points, but in the end, uh, she has come up uh, aces for her yeah. party uh, all along. So right. it, yeah, now let's get to the witness rules um, and the Republican senators. How do you think that's going to end up playing out for for them? Well, we we heard this in the announcement of the impeachment managers that what they're really worried about. The, the Senate will not call witnesses. Uh, we're getting word that there sh- should be enough Republican senators who are willing to do this and call the witnesses. And one of the things that uh, the House Democrats are pointing out is that if there are no witnesses in this trial, it will not be an actual trial, it, uh, like any trial that has happened before, or indeed any prior impeachment trial. Uh, and that you can't, you can no longer call it a fair trial if you're not allowed to call witnesses. So, I, I'm guessing they're, they're going to be witnesses. The question is, who are they going to be? And are they wow. going to be compelled, such as folks from the, like Don McGahn from uh, the Trump administration? Yeah, and I, I'm not convinced that they're going to be witnesses. I'm really not. And I think that it could end up hurting those senators terribly um, if they vote against the witnesses. And then the Senate is coming up for election in 2020 in a number of states. Um, and there, there will be payment. <laughs> you know, it may very well come down to a 50-50 vote. And then it becomes, then it goes to John Roberts and what he decides for it. And that will be in the rules. <laughs> so there, there will be a rule on that, I, I guess, as, as well um, as these other rules. So that's well, what we're waiting for. Um, it's going to so be big as, news. As we're recording this, and we should point out we're recording this on uh, Wednesday afternoon, so you might be listening to this at twelve ha- twenty six p.m. Right. Eastern. Right, so you might have uh, information. There might be information when you're listening to this that's different in terms of what the rules are. We just don't know yet. Uh, and let's move on to real be. quick about Pelosi and the evidence that has come out because now, we well, this is the, the- this is the other part of the rules, right? Do you allow new evidence into the trial? New evidence that was not part of the actual initial inquiry. And as you said, there is new evidence that has just come out. The Lev Parnas notes. Uh, Lev Parnas, who was the associate of Rudy Giuliani, who was sort of the bag man for the bag man. If Giuliani was the bag man for Trump, Parnas is the bag man for Rudy. Um, And he is trying to, I don't know why, but he's trying to help the impeachment process. Actually, there is a reason, uh, and it's personal. It was mentioned that he was so offended because when the president, the president of the United States, Donald Trump, was asked if he knew Lev Parnas. He was like, yeah, no, not really. I think I took a picture with him, but I, I don't really know the guy. And Lev Parnas is like, yo, bro, what are you talking about? Do you know how much I, Do you know how much I've done for you? That picture? And he's almost like a jilted lover. And he's like, well, I'll show you how much I know. I'll show you how well I know the president. 
And so all of this material just got sent to the house. And the material is huge. That Ambassador Yovanovitch was under surveillance and in actual danger. It is remarkable stuff what came out last right. night. So the U- is- Ukrainian, this is the key, the Ukrainian ambassador was under surveillance by foreign agents working sort of on behalf of the president in his capacity as a private citizen. I mean, this is really tough to get your head around, and yet that seems to be what was going on. And President Trump did say on the phone call, the famous perfect phone call, that she's going to go through some stuff. And then she gets a phone call saying, you got to get out of the country because you're going to go through some stuff. That's crazy, man. I mean, that's, that's legitimately out of bounds that one of our ambassadors, one of our... our best diplomats that we have in this country is uh is is under attack from the president or his associates shocking stuff there's no way with adam schiff there that he's not going to be able to at least present this evidence in the impeachment trial now it may get shot down and it may say mitch mcconnell might say you can't talk about any of that stuff but i think it's a political process impeachment but it's going to be a political political experience impeachment. Mm-hmm. And yeah, one of the people that we haven't talked about, you just mentioned him, is uh, John Roberts. So the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court presides over the impeachment proceedings. And so he's the one who rules whether things are allowed or not. And one of the things that we've seen with John Roberts over the past year, uh, particularly uh, as the court has shifted, is that he has focused a lot more, or seemed to have focused a lot more on protecting the integrity of the institution, of the court, um, but also the institutions of government as a whole. And now he's playing this role in this historic impeachment process. Yes. And that's in the back of his mind. Yes. I think I would agree with you that in that point, he would have to err on the side of giving a fair hearing to new evidence yeah unless the rules so too. clearly prohibit him from doing that but that's why i'm saying it's going to be a political situation because if john roberts says yes this these witnesses should be heard and then mcconnell comes out and overrules the chief justice of the united states politically that's going to be challenging yeah well so M- you, mcconnell you can't, at that point go. mcconnell can't no one once can. once the trial's underway uh, for no th- he can overrule he can object. any, no, he, I believe, I could be wrong, please, if you're listening, I believe he can overrule any judgment made by the Chief Justice if he has 51 senators. They can say, yeah, we're not going to go with that. We have 51 senators that are saying that that ruling doesn't work for us. I'm saying that in that's the gray area, that's where the politics is going to shift things. If you start seeing John Roberts saying, I rule this way, and Mitch McConnell says, well, we're going to do a, a vote on your ruling, and the Republicans overrule, I mean, that's where you're really in kangaroo court stuff. And it's going to be that, I think that's where, you know, you have Schiff screaming, saying, how dare you, sir? I mean, you know, there's a lot that can happen here. It's, it's you know, I think that the House the House impeachment process was actually kind of, it was like, we got people on this side and we got people on this side and this is how we feel and this is how we feel. I think this other, I think the Senate is going to be just a whole other animal. I think we haven't seen anything quite like this before. And it's it's going to be very uh, very dramatic, is I think what I want to say. Well, we'll learn more about that. Uh, I'm sure by the time we talk next week, 
uh, we'll yes. have a much clearer picture of what that's uh, going to be. But uh, for right now, um, you know, it's it. the next step uh, is occurring, uh, and we'll, we'll see where it leads. Uh, there was one other incident that I wanted to bring up. Uh, it wasn't quite related to, to impeachment, but it was one of Donald Trump's strongest supporters. So Florida uh, Representative Matt Gates, And this was in um, reference to the War Powers Resolution uh, that the House voted on, which is to limit President Trump's ability to uh, commit troops in combat in the Middle East uh, without congressional approval. And he was one of the few Republicans who voted with the Democrats to do that. So what do you what do you make of that? Well, you know, Matt Gates is, we've talked about him, he's the bulldog of the right. I mean, he's in some ways extremely effective, smarter, it seems, than Jim Jordan. Um, and really clever and very powerful. A, a real, a real, uh, a really powerful force that's going to be around in America for a long time, I think. And Matt Gates voting against this, it was striking to everybody, I think. It was... But here's the trick. Well, he didn't. He didn't always, only just vote against it. He, he sent, came out and spoke. He came out and spoke about it. He also sent a letter to all his Republican colleagues in the House, urging them to support it. Which well, got back to President Trump and his people, and President Trump was none too happy with uh, that. It's so interesting. Every time someone and you know, and Trump took him to the, takes him to football games. Um, Trump likes Gates a lot. Trump was talking about Gates. We talked about this about Gates possibly running in Alabama as a carpetbagger uh, mm-hmm. for Senate. Um, but here's the reality for Matt Gates: He has more servicemen in his district than any other congressperson in the country. Yeah, he's looking out for his constituents there. Um, is it, does this put him in guardian of the weak territory? It does not. Um, but it, it certainly was, I think it matches his beliefs. Um, that, and as well, Congress should. You better step up and say, hey, w- w- we have some powers in this nation, uh, but also for political expediency and for his constituency, it made a lot of sense to vote against this. Yeah, so un- he really, yeah. unlike Mike Lee, who we talked about last week, who um, expressed his, uh, dis- his concern with what he heard in the briefing on the uh, attack on Soleimani, the assassination of Soleimani, and the call to have Congress step back. Uh, he didn't have the same kind of self-interest, is, is what you're saying, that Matt Gates does in terms of right. who no, I think I think Lee. I think Lee is, is just, this is a passionate feeling for him. Uh, and that's why, you know, it was so shocking. And, and watching someone kind of finally let out the frustration that they feel, you know, I mean, it must be hard sometimes to be a Republican senator and sort of have to toe the, you know, toe the party line all the time. So when, you're feeling as if Matt Gates's uh, district had uh, 75 or 100,000 fewer members, uh, service members that he might have uh, yeah. acted differently. Yes, I do. I do feel that way. But I think that I think it's probably how he feels. But I don't know that he would have overstepped against the president if that wasn't the case. Mm-hmm. You know what's, what's interesting? Because I, you know, I follow um, uh, legislative behavior, uh, particularly at, at the state level where I know a lot of uh, here where I live in New Jersey. I know a lot of the state legislators. And there are always cases where somebody ha- for their own interest has to vote against the party. And usually they're given the all clear to do it if they know it won't have any impact on, on, in the end. And that does not seem to be the case in the Trump party. 
Yeah, that, and you know, we'll see which we'll see if you have Cory Gardner and Tillis and Collins vote for witnesses. <laughs> Even right? possibly McSally from Arizona. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Like it, maybe they could. They'll. they'll all they'll, of whom, by the way, all these folks are up for re-election in the and U.S. They're Senate in, tough, in 2020. And they're in tough, in tough situations, yep. tough states where they they could they could handily lose. So you give them the opportunity to vote against the president and vote for witnesses. But does President Trump have enough discipline to sort of just take that and say, hey, this is something that they need to do, which will help put more bullets in my gun in 2021 if I'm still the president of the United States, as opposed to having a Democratic Senate where I can get nothing done? Yeah, so we'll see. But that, uh, but my question then is how many of those shots can somebody like a Matt Gates take where they either step into line and you know never get out of line with Trump or they start resenting it and break away. And this is one of the things that you've talked about you know before we talked about it last week with Christianity today and the evangelicals cracks. Very very small cracks. So which which direction do these cracks lead? Uh, and that's why I wanted to bring up this particular incident uh, not directly related to impeachment but it's the potential for a crack in the in the Trump cult phenomenon that's going on in the Republican Party. I'm sorry. I don't imagine that. I agree with you. And I don't imagine that Matt Gates is going to be doing more of those cracks. I think that's that's pretty much the limit on his cracks, at least for a while. Okay. So now before we turn to the debate, um, which I'm very excited to discuss, let's check in on the latest polls. You had a really big poll uh, from Iowa this week. Uh, what did you learn? Yeah. So we have had two polls out of Iowa in the past uh, week. So the Mammoth poll came out on Monday and showed Joe Biden at uh, 24%, uh, Bernie Sanders at 18, Pete Buttigieg at 17, Elizabeth Warren at 15, and Amy Klobuchar deserves a mention because she actually got 8%. Uh, and we last polled Iowa back in November. Uh, we see uh, Biden's numbers uh, continue to tick down slightly every time we, we poll him, but he's, but he's still in the lead, obviously. The big number that, that dropped down was uh, was Warren's, who was actually in the lead in Iowa um, uh, some time ago. You know, we've talked enough about her and how she's lost support since she's was put on the uh, yeah. But we're about to, but we're about to talk about her and how she did at the debate last right. night. But uh, what was interesting is so our poll came out then the, then the um, Des Moines Register poll conducted by Ann Seltzer, who's the top pollster in Iowa. Uh, came out with different numbers. Now we have, uh, she had Bernie Sanders in the lead by three points. Now everybody's talking about uh, this poll. Why is this poll different from that poll? And there are slight differences in our methodologies, and I won't get into them here. Uh, but they're based on real decisions that you that you make as a pollster because you don't know who's going to show up in the Iowa caucus. But what people keep I, I, this continues to bother me. <laughs> what people people keep focusing on is who's ahead by two or three or four points. And if you're ahead by three or four points in an Iowa poll, in a, in a situation where we know that voters change their minds rapidly, the two polls are actually saying the same thing. If you it's actually close. analyze them, is that there are four people who could end up emerging as the winner, or we could end up with a four-person race coming out of Iowa. Uh, that's what both polls are saying. So, you know, you need to stop over-focusing or on the precision of one number versus another and look at the overall story. They're both telling the same story, which is a, it's a four-person race uh, in Iowa right now, and it's incredibly fluid. 
right? Yes. All right. Super so, fluid. And so with, with last, that, go ahead. Yeah, all right. I'm excited. I'm all right. Excited so with that, we're going to, we are going to move on to our hot take <laughs> segment, right? So we set up yeah. uh, Iowa. We had the debate in Iowa. And this week, we're going to devote our hot take segment to the Democratic debate. So what we'll do is we'll take 90 seconds to discuss each candidate who was on the debate stage. And when you hear this sound, it'll be time to move on to the next candidate. So the first one up, you've been chomping at the bit for this one. Elizabeth Warren, how'd she do? Oh, all right, all right, all right. I tell you, I, I was really frustrated with Elizabeth Warren going back, I think, two, de- two debates ago where she was the centerpiece and everyone turned all their cannons on, on her and she looked shell-shocked. And, I, and that was the first moment where I was like, oh, you're actually human. You're, you're, you're not this great, necessarily always going to land on your feet uh, debater. Well, last night she sure was. From my perspective, we can still argue about uh, policy, um, ideas that she has that are uh, shocking at times where it's like, really, you're going to really say that right now? And you have to know that she was, to me, with Buttigieg as a close second, just in terms of communication skills on her game. She was on point, as one of my close friends says. Yep. And uh, she was fantastic last night. She was well, strong. Whatever, she what took it, whatever staffer uh, prepared her with that response on the woman controversy, it was just a perfect response. It was well-prepared. Uh, she delivered it well. I, 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 I agree with you. But I think the idea, wait, wait, Patrick. Yeah. But the idea is that I don't think it was a staffer. And when she's in, on her game, she's so on her toes. She doesn't need staff. She's not like that. Nah, that was a staffer. I'll tell okay. you, having been okay. around, that, that, that answer was prepared by a staffer who looked it up and, and they d- decided to go in that direction. But that, that's, that's not the point. She was stronger in this debate. I, I you know, she had that target on her earlier that's caused her to drop down there as i said iowa is very fluid right now that's why i brought up the polls and the thing is they're all fighting for the for this top spot she she did she she will tick up in iowa based on that debate that's what i say i think she was the winner last night okay moving on now to her opponent (laughs) oddly her friend bernie sanders how did you feel that bernie sanders did in this episode in in this debate last night yeah um I, th- you know, every time we talk about these debates and we talk about Bernie Sanders, the only thing that I can say is Bernie Sanders was Bernie Sanders. Uh, and uh, I think what was interesting about this debate, there was a lot more focus on policy and policy differences really came out a little bit more, uh, particularly on uh, the U.S. trade deal with Mexico and Canada. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, we yeah. saw a big difference there. And I noted your, your quote from Washington <laughs> at the top. You know, Sanders has a clearly different point of view on trade deals than everybody else who was standing on that stage. And that is something that I think will help voters of Iowa make up their minds if they're thinking of moving towards Sanders. Sanders isn't going to lose any of his support. The question is, can he pick up support? Or, right. no, or can he knock lose other some of his down? support? No, he's going to lose some of his support. He was the guy now, last night. He was the one that everyone was turning their cannons on. And he struggled. Little simple stuff where he would put his hand to his ear, right? And, and listen kind of more closely. I gotta, I'm sorry, I'm having trouble hearing you. Him running out of breath a couple of times, him turning face to face with Elizabeth Warren, that face to face was, was a powerful moment for Warren against Sanders. Again, it's, it, it does come down to what it looks like during this communication experience. He was not at his best. He was far from it. And I think he's going to, he's going to tick down from this. Okay. So let's move on to uh, Amy Klobuchar. How did you think uh, she did? 
you know, overall, she's 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 fine. You know, uh, she she had a bad moment. There was one bad moment that she could not afford. She was talking about it was right after Warren did that very clever bit about the their two women on the stage right. have never lost uh, a, 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 an election and the men have lost ten. That was a great moment for for Warren Klobuchar coming in to take that on starts talking about the importance of women in politics. Could not for the life of her remember the name of the governor of Kansas. Yeah, Laura Laura Kelly. And yeah. she was drowning until one of her staff screamed out, Kelly. Oh, and she says, governor, somebody. Governor Kelly. And she said, thank you. Thank you. Yes, of course, Governor Kelly. Okay, so the, I think I, I think one of the things with Klobuchar, because I'm jumping in here because you're, you're, you're dominating this one to just one point, is that we have talked about her in every past debate as she's had a good debate. She had a good debate. She had a good debate. I think this was one of her worst debates, yes. relatively speaking. Uh, she didn't seem prepared. She kept running over her time. She kept mistiming her answers so that her end answer didn't come off strong. The end of her answer never came off strong. And so I think she was looking at, hey, uh, there was a little bit of desperation. As I said, we saw some movement for her in our, our Iowa poll, but she needs to break out. She fumbled. And I think she missed that. I think She I, fumbled. She's yeah. down 14. Using a football analogy, I don't even watch football anymore. She's down 14 points in the fourth quarter. She's got the ball and she fumbled. She said, they need to. we need to elect a competent in the White House. And I was like, oh, man, you can't afford that. Yeah, I you think she had a missed, missed, missed opportunity for her agreed there. agreed very firmly okay let's move on to uh mayor pete Buttigieg. what did you think of it again uh, the best communicator in the field uh the most poise of anybody on that stage uh he came prepared uh i thought the most telling question for him was about african-american support and how does he explain the fact that he doesn't have it and he mentioned a couple of folks in iowa and it almost sounded to me like he was saying, and I do have the token African-American office holders in Iowa supporting me. That's the way it just came off to me. And also him saying that I have the support of people in, in my, you know, in w- where I live. Right. Uh, You're right. You know, he ran an ad. He's got an ad about African-Americans in, in South Bend, Indiana, supporting him. Yeah. It, you know what? Unfortunately for Mayor Pete, again, you're dead on right. The best communicator in the field. Again, with Elizabeth Warren, though, I think Warren even had a better night than Buttigieg. But the two of them, from the beginning, we've said, are the two best communicators in the field. He came off young last night. Um, he came off, uh, to me, he was still yeah, strong. Yeah. But he, I will agree with you. I was looking at him physically. I said, did he get his hair cut shorter than normally? Yeah, I was, I was looking because he, I, there was a feeling that I got was looking at him that he seemed younger than he had yeah. in any other debate. It's like, don't we have anybody in between 37 and 78? Like, <laughs> who's in the middle? I mean, Klobuchar is, but that's kind of it. Um, and he did, he struck me as young. He struck me as a vice presidential candidate, though I don't think that's what he's going to be. Okay. All right. So let's move on to uh, Joe Biden. Yeah. Speaking of young. <laughs> sleepy Joe Biden. I don't like sleepy Joe Biden. I don't like that. I don't like that name for him. It was a set. It was a bad night for Joe Biden in my eyes. Um, he, we know he has a stuttering issue. It was particularly pronounced last night. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, he kept losing his place. He stopped himself numerous times saying, one time it was good when he said, I don't want to go over like everyone else does. But a couple of times it just looked like somebody who was tired and was like, I don't, I don't want to say anything more because I might say something wrong. He had one moment at the end of the first uh, period, right before the first commercial break, where he burped. And it was just, it was just, he just came off really old. And I was like, oh, Joe, this is not you at your best. I was sorry to see that for him. 
are right before the Iowa caucus. So that that was how I took it. Yeah. In the in the end, though, I don't think this is going to change the dynamic all that much. And the reason being is because I don't think anybody else scored off of him. This, for example, this is where a, a contrast with Amy Klobuchar, if she had been a better performer, would have helped her. Yeah. You know, and and since that didn't happen, and since Pete Buttigieg seemed young, I don't think that performance. And I agree with you on on the on the content of that performance, but I don't think it actually hurt him in the standings because of that. You know what? I think it does because at the end of the day, what everyone's thinking is who can punch Trump, who can handle Trump on a stage, and he didn't look like he could last night. The, the debate before, he was great. He was on yeah. fire. He was ready to go, and was like, "Oh, there you go, Joe. Go get him, pal." But last night, I just it did not it did not strike me in that way. Um, all right, let's talk just briefly about uh, Steyer. Um, but also, since we're not going to talk that much about Tom Steyer, the rest of the field and your overall thoughts from the night. Uh, yes, yeah, so Tom Steyer. Why was he there? Uh, <laughs> is is really a question. It, it was funny with the six people and the and the way the questions came out because. Everybody was given actually the opportunity to answer basically the same question, which was, I think, the first time that that's happened. That's why we were able to get the contrast. So because of that, it looked like Tom Steyer didn't belong with the other five. No, he didn't. Right. Um, so, But the question was, who wasn't there that I was, still would have liked to hear? I would have liked to hear from Andrew Yang. Um, obviously, Cory Booker dropped out of the race. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a problem you know, there. Obviously, a lot of people are talking about the whiteness of the, uh, of the debate stage. Uh, but I think uh, what we're seeing right now, what came what came into me out of this debate is that that it didn't change the overall dynamic, particularly in Iowa. We still have the top four with Amy Klobuchar looking in, and yeah. and, okay. and anything can still happen. Okay, so for me, uh, I would have liked to have seen Michael Bloomberg on that stage. I'd love, I'd love to see how he competes against these other candidates. He did not go that path because he doesn't have the donors, which is too bad. Um, but my overall thoughts are, I think that Warren is going to get a bump from from last night. I really do. I think that she has, I, th- I think if it, it, it's it's soon, you know. I, I don't know how it's going to change things with impeachment in the Senate, but I thought it was a really strong night for Elizabeth Warren. Uh, and I think that she's going to bump up in those polls. In the next Iowa poll you see, you're going to see Warren tick up and you're going to see Sanders drop down a little bit. And and, and I think it's going to be the female vote too. I think that her, her answer about mm-hmm. a, a female president is going to rub some people the right way. All right. That sounds good. Uh, more coming uh, in the coming weeks. That's the last debate before Iowa, uh, Iowa is actually held. So uh, we'll be talking about the, the next time I think we talk about something actually happening will be the actual Iowa caucuses. Mm-hmm. All right. So let's move on to our Guardian of the Week segment. And we were really scratching our heads over this one until you had uh, a bit of a brainstorm. Okay. So... Rob Manfred is the commissioner of baseball for Major League Baseball. And just to give a quick overview of the situation that happened this week in baseball, I'm a big baseball guy. I'm a fantasy baseball is a big part of my life. I play baseball, baseball. So I follow it very, very closely. The Houston Astros, the best team in baseball, one of the best teams in baseball for the last number of years. It came out that in 2017, when they won the World Series, there is documented footage of them cheating to win the World Series. It started with a a pitcher named Mike Fires, who used to pitch on that team, who now pitches on another team, and said, you know, the Astros were cheating all that time. And it's terrible, and because it's hurt other pitchers' careers, it's terrible that that happened. So this came out, (laughs) and Major League Baseball was like, yo, you did what? Then in 2018, Alex Cora, who was the bench coach, not the manager, but the bench coach, the number two guy, 
um, was left the Astros because he had his team won the World Series and took over the Boston Red Sox. His team, the Boston Red Sox, then won the World Series that next year. Turns out that he was cheating with the Red Sox. So what's happened is the commissioner of baseball, Rob Manfred, came out and didn't do any sl- slap on the wrist kind of thing. Came out with a sledgehammer to to the Houston Astros and said, you're suspended for a year, A.J. Hinch, the manager. And Rob Lundhau, you are suspended for a year. You're not to have anything to do with these teams. We're taking away your top two draft picks for the next two years. The owner of the Houston Astros then fired what is considered, A.J. Hinch, the best manager in baseball and fired the general manager. Then Alex Cora, who led the Red Sox to a World Series championship, he got fired. So what you're saying is that this is a unprecedented response. Yes, absolutely unprecedented. This is this is Pete Rose. This is Joe Jackson. This is baseball stepping in and saying that what you have done is so egregious that it, it that it, to not punish you in this way would hurt the game forever. Why is he then the guardian of the week? He is symbolizing to me, to us, how we as Americans must look at the present time. The value. Now, baseball is just baseball. It's just a game. But it's important to us as Americans. It really is. If we can't care for that game, the stewards of the game, if we cannot hold people accountable for it, then nobody cares about baseball anymore because it's just a bunch of cheaters. I look at it in the same way that's going on with President Trump right now. That accountability must be had. Yeah, you know what's what's interesting about this? Uh, what what I thought of was the contrast with how Roger Goodell has handled what's going on with the New England Patriots and their cheating over the years. Very similar style of things. And he has not come down in the same way that Manfred did uh, in this, you know, really caught everybody by surprise. In fact, I was talking to reporters about political stuff and almost every one of the conversations started about was something about the Astros and what was going on with them. So, you know, this was, this caught everybody, uh, I think even in the political world, as a statement of fair, fair, we got to play by the rules. Yes. Uh, And, you know, what's interesting when I think about what's going on in the NFL and the Patriots and Goodell is, of course, you know, who's who's uh, Tom Brady's good buddy there? Uh, President Trump. Donald, President Trump. It's kind of an interesting contrast. And uh, and a guardian of the week in a, in, a, in a different way, showing that in all walks of American life, including America's pastime, is you got to abide by the norms of behavior. Or or the beha- or the norms go away forever. Right. And then and then we have nothing. So this week's Guardian of the Week is Rob Manfred. All right, so that's it for this week's edition of Guardians of the Republic. If you have any suggestions for a Guardian of the Week from any walk of life, please reach out to us on Twitter at GuardiansOTR. And please make sure to subscribe to get the latest episodes on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, or your favorite podcast app. And please give us a rating so others can find us or tell your friends. Also, check out our website at guardians-republic.com. Thanks for joining us, and we'll be back with a new episode as the impeachment trial starts next week. See ya. See ya.